Welcome to this Uvila audio presentation of The Caves of Fear by John Blaine. Volume 8, Chapter 18, The Hostages A faint splashing warned Rick that the boats were approaching. In a few moments they were opposite his position. He swung the infrared light around toward them and snapped it on. There were two men in the lead boat one rowing and the other taking his ease in the stern. Rick's heart leapt as he saw that the passenger was of very slender build. Was this Long Shadow? He couldn't see his face clearly. He looked at the second boat, and a sudden grin split his lips. Worthington Co. The Chinese merchant was sitting at ease, and there was no mistaking his portly figure. Besides, he twisted on the wooden seat, making himself more comfortable, and for an instant his face was toward Rick. Good, Rick muttered to himself. If the slender man wasn't Long Shadow, at least he would have Ko to deal with. The Chinese with the glass eye could, he knew, speak English, although it was probable that Long Shadow could, too. He watched as the boats reached the barge. Ko and the slender man got out. Rick studied the stranger, noting he was taller than Ko and so thin that compared to the portly merchant, he looked like an animated beanpole. As soon as the excitement of their arrival had died down among the Tibetans, he intended to get into his boat and start toward the camp. Ko and the stranger talked together for a moment. Then the latter gestured toward the Tibetans. The Tibetans ran toward the tents while the two newcomers waited. Rick watched the Tibetans. His brow furrowed. Certainly they weren't going to strike camp. He revised his plans hastily. If they did start to take down the tents, he would dump his prisoners back into the boat. Then he would follow wherever they went. The Tibetans vanished into the tents, and in a moment they came out again. And they were leading Scotty, Zircon, and Chada. Rick gasped. His friends had been in the camp all the time. They were prisoners. He groaned softly. If he had only known, he might have gotten to them while the boats were gone and the number of guards were temporarily reduced. He got to his knees, determined to start for them right away. Then he paused as his three friends were led before the two strangers. They were all erect, their hands tied behind them. At any rate, prisoners or not, they were evidently none the worse for their captivity. Again he started for the boat, and again he paused. What if Long Shadow and Co. intended on loading them into the boats? It might be wiser to wait. He sank down to a sitting position, caressing the cold metal of his rifle. The next few moments would tell the story. Worthington Co. stepped forward, confronting Zircon. 
The Chinese nodded his head, then deliberately slapped the scientist across the face. Zircon couldn't strike back, but his legs were free. One massive leg swung in a giant punt that caught the Chinese squarely in the stomach. Worthington Co. flew backwards like a rag doll and slid along the limestone floor. Rick watched the tableau, spellbound. The Tibetans ran forward. Rick put the camera down, light pointing at the group across the way. Then he raised his rifle and sighted in. He could get some of them before they could harm his friends. His finger tightened slowly on the trigger, and then the Tibetans fell back as Longshadow barked an order. Worthington Co. got to his feet, bent over, both hands on his stomach. He weaved a little. The breath had been knocked right out of him, Rick thought. The Tibetans and Longshadow watched as Ko straightened up very slowly. He ran his hands gingerly over his big stomach. Then, walking unsteadily, he moved back to within a few feet of Zircon. He called out something, and one of the Tibetans ran forward. Rick's throat clogged as the torchlight reflected from a shiny blade. Ko took the blade and swished it through the air. Then, drawing it back, he stepped forward. The Chinese was squarely in Rick's sights. He squeezed the trigger. The rifle recoiled against his shoulder. The shot thundered through the echoing cave. Ko staggered. He dropped the blade, took a couple of hesitant steps backwards, and then sat down hard. Suddenly there was chaos in the camp across the way. The Tibetans ran back and forth aimlessly like sheep. Longshadow bellowed orders. Then he ran to a torch and pulled it out of its socket and heated it into the water. The Tibetans got the idea. The torches flashed through the air and then hissed out in the water. Longshadow felt his way toward the three spin drifters, calling out orders to the Tibetans. Rick suddenly realized that, of all in sight, he was the only one who could see. Longshadow and his men thought they were safe in the darkness. He watched, rifle at his shoulder, as Longshadow collected the Tibetans. Then he realized that the enemy intended to herd Scotty, Zircon, and Chada into the caves. Probably they were certain that in the caves they'd be safe from whomever had fired from the darkness. Ko was still sitting. He had one hand pressed to his side. The Tibetans were groping for their prisoners. Rick grinned. He aimed at the stone under their feet and fired. There was a chorus of yells. He levered another cartridge into the chamber and then fired again. The Tibetans fled, charging blindly toward the cave openings beyond the tents. Longshadow kept yelling orders and groping around in the blackness, but the Tibetans paid no attention. They reached the back wall of the cave. Two of them went headlong into the openings. Others crashed into the walls and fell and crawled sideways, scrambling until they found the openings they so frantically sought. Longshadow's voice could be heard screaming in fury for his men to come back. He couldn't see as Rick could, that they were all now in the caves beyond their leader. Finally giving up, Longshadow started for safety himself. It would never do to allow the thin man to get away, Rick thought. He wanted Longshadow. He and his companions had questions to ask, and they needed him to get them out of the caves of fear. He sighted carefully at the long legs that were feeling their way toward the back wall, and fired. Longshadow stumbled headlong. Then he started to crawl. Rick stood up and yelled, Gang! Get Longshadow! 
His words echoed eerily through the cave. Zircon understood and bellowed, Where is he? Rick thought quickly. The three were still standing in a line. He shouted orders. Right face! Forward! March! Like a well-trained machine, his friends obeyed. They marched forward steadily, but they were slightly off. He remembered the correct command. Left oblique! March! Scotty swung a quarter left, bumped into Zircon. Chada stood still, not understanding. Neither had Zircon comprehended the command. Rick yelled, Scotty, turn right just a fraction. Scotty did so. Now, Rick called, he's about ten feet in front of you. Scotty moved forward, feeling his way a step at a time. When he was almost on Longshadow, Rick yelled, You're there! Longshadow turned over on his back and clawed in his pockets. Watch out, he's got a gun! Rick screamed. Scotty jumped feet first. He missed Longshadow by a fraction, landing next to his chest. Fall to the left! Rick yelled. Scotty crashed down across the man, calling to Zircon and Chada. Guided by their friend's voice, the two reached his side quickly. Rick couldn't hear what Scotty said, but the big scientist suddenly sat down, his back to Long Shadow. A moment later, he writhed away, and he had the pistol between his bound hands. Rick sighed in relief. Wait! he yelled. I'll be right there! He didn't dare take his eyes off the scene long enough to pick up his prisoner. Time enough for that later. He untied the boat and got in. He knelt, placing the rifle on the seat in front of him, next to the infrared camera. Then, using the oar as a paddle once more, he started straight across to the camp. It wasn't a far journey, but as he reached the halfway mark, two of the Tibetans looked cautiously out of their hiding places. Rick put the oar across the gunwale, picked up his rifle, and sighted carefully. Fortunately, there wasn't so much as a ripple on the water. The boat was perfectly steady. He squeezed the trigger, and the stalactite directly over their heads shattered into a thousand pieces, showering them with limestone. They didn't wait for a second shot. He could hear their yells even after they had ducked into the caves. They weren't used to sharpshooting in total darkness. Rick smiled as he resumed paddling. He could understand how they felt. He wasn't used to it either. In a few moments, he was at the barge. He tied the boat to one of the odd derrick affairs and scrambled out. Then, picking up the camera and rifle, he hurried to his friends. Scotty and Chada were using Long Shadow as a bench. Zircon sat a little distance apart, trying to peer toward Rick through the darkness. Dark in here, isn't it? Rick inquired pleasantly. Rick, you old muttonhead! Scotty exclaimed. Thank God you're safe. Zircon said. Chada grinned the widest grin he had ever grinned, and said, Also, giving much thanks that Rick has eyes like cat that see in dark. The Hindu boy didn't know about the infrared camera, unless the others had explained it to him. There hadn't been time back at camp, and Rick hadn't thought of it anyway. In a moment, the three were untied, rubbing circulation back into their wrists. Let's get a light, Zircon said. I think we had better see to the wounded. I assume there are wounded. I know Ko was hit, and just as he was about to carve my head from my shoulders, too. He's sitting over there, Rick said. Where's there? Scotty asked. 
Rick kept forgetting he was the only one who could see. Where he dropped, Long Shadow was hit too. I don't know how badly. For the first time, they heard their enemy's voice. It was rather high, but cultured and pleasant. Not badly, although I believe my ankle may be broken. I have felt, and I don't believe I am bleeding much. Rick knelt quickly and put the infrared light on the wound. Long Shadow was right. It hadn't bled much. And Zircon, looking the wound over after borrowing the glasses, told him, I doubt the ankle is broken. The wound is clean. Stay where you are, Rick warned him. We'll bandage you after we look after Ko. I have no intention of going anywhere, Longshadow said. Not when some magic I don't understand permits you to see in complete darkness. Rick took the glasses from Zircon's hand in the interval during which the scientist was wearing them. He had understood how the others felt. The darkness was absolute. He put the glasses on again and walked over to Ko, talking so his friends could follow the sound of his voice. Well, Mr. Ko, you got a little surprised, didn't you? The Chinese with the glass eye groaned. You have won, he complained weakly. Now have the kindness to let me go to my ancestors in peace. Better let me take a look at him, Zircon said. Rick walked to the scientist's side and took one of his hands. Then he took off the glasses and pressed them into the hand he was holding. That done, he stood in the blackness and waited. Lie flat, Zircon said presently. Please, go away, Ko groaned. Lie flat, Zircon ordered again. There was a sound of ripping cloth. Zircon grunted. Huh, Ko moaned. I wish to go to my ancestors alone. You're not going to your ancestors, Zircon replied scornfully. I doubt they'd have you anyway. In case you're interested, Rick's bullet just plowed a nice round hole through some of the fat on your right side. You haven't even lost enough blood to make the wound interesting. Ko's voice was suddenly animated. Are you sure? Quite sure. Now don't try to get up. Stay where you are. If you try to run, I'll order our seeing-eye marksman to finish the job. Zircon continued. Rick, Scotty, Chada, stay where you are. I saw some torches stacked in one of the tents. I'll go get them and be right back. The three boys assured him that they wouldn't move. Rick, for one, had no intention of prowling around in the blackness. While they waited, Scotty asked, What happened to you, Rick? Rick hesitated. He couldn't give an adequate account of what he had experienced during the recent hours, or was it weeks? He summed it up. After we got separated, I couldn't find you again. I wandered around and then sat down in a big cave and fell asleep. When I woke up, there was a Tibetan with a candle. I followed him to a boat landing, slugged him, and rode across the lake. He's waiting, tied up across the lake at the spot from where I fired. How about you? We spent a long time looking for you, Chada said. Such a long time that we almost got ourselves lost. Finally, we decided we'd better push on and find Long Shadow, Scotty continued. We tracked the drippings from the candles for hours. It was slow. Then, while we were resting, we got jumped from behind. They didn't even have to bother about lights because one of our flashlights was on. It was getting so weak we couldn't see more than ten feet around us. They came out of the darkness with a rush, and there we were. They made us walk to the boat landing, Called the boats from here, 
and then brought us over. We've been sitting in one of those tents for hours. You know the rest. How rapidly they could cover the tortured hours of travel in just a few words, Rick thought. But he only said, Glad we're all together again. How could you see in the dark? Chada asked. Rick briefly explained. The Hindu boy chuckled. There was plenty of mystery there for one who did not know, you bet. I was scared myself, like the men who ran away. Then Zircon came back. He brought out matches, and in a moment torches were blazing again. They bandaged the two enemies as best they could, using clean handkerchiefs, which Chada and Scotty carried, and Rick got his first good look at Long Shadow's face. The man was incredibly thin. His skin was stretched across the bones of his face like parchment, and it had a sallow ivory tinge, even in the ruddy torchlight. His eyes were black with just the faintest hint of a mongoloid fold. Are you Eurasian? Rick asked bluntly. Yes, Longshadow smiled. I'm one quarter Burmese. The other three quarters don't matter. You know our names, Rick said. I'm sure you do, but we don't know yours. Longshadow laughed. Who could never pronounce my Burmese name? And the other name I use is of no importance to you. Zircon and the others had been listening. Now the scientist said, We'll have plenty of chances to talk, Rick. At the moment, I'm concerned with getting out of here. After a bit of exploration, of course, it's almost certain the heavy water is coming from here, although I don't know the source. Scotty motioned toward the Lake of Darkness. Bradley said to bring a nonsense bottle in a rubber boat. He must have known about this. Why would he say to bring a nonsense bottle if not to take a sample from the lake? Zircon flashed a look at Longshadow. The Eurasian smiled gently. That is a good question, Mr. Scott asked, he told them. But don't look to me for an answer. Search the tents, Zircon ordered. Chada. Keep an eye on our two friends. The three Americans walked to the felt tents and began searching through them. Zircon used the infrared camera. Rick and Scotty took torches. Rick was feeling through a pile of furs when Zircon called. Here are the flashlights. Zircon's had run down, but Scotty's and Chada's big lights were still useful. They made the search much easier. Rick went back to the pile of skins and found that they were plastic-lined water bags, similar to the ones they had found on the way to Course Lincoln. Then, stacked in a quarter of the tent, he found some nonsense bottles. At the same moment, Scotty called from the next tent, Look what I found! He had located the ammunition supply. There was powder and ball for the old muskets the Tibetan used, two boxes of machine pistol cartridges, and a small case of grenades. Now we know where Ko got the one he used to try to use on us, Rick said. But where did they come from in the first place? The war, Scotty guessed. There must have been tons of ammo and ordnance of all kinds floating around China. What makes me wonder is why the Tibetans don't have modern rifles. I suspect the answer is their natural conservatism, Zircon suggested. They are slow to change. Such guns as they use are handed down from father to son. I don't doubt that modern rifles were offered to them 
and that they refused. Rick knew something of the Asian mind, although not so much, and he realized that Zircon was probably right. In a land of ancestor worship, change was resisted. Scotty stuffed grenades in each pocket. Just in case we get into a fight on the way out, he explained. Rick was glad to leave the deadly thing to his friend. Scotty knew about grenades from his tour of duty in the Marines. He had thrown more than a few himself. Nansen bottles in the next tent, Professor, Rick said. There must be something to this business of getting stuff out of the lake. By golly, you don't get heavy water out of natural water, do you? I don't know, Zircon said. There is only one precedent I could think of. Have you ever heard of Lake Baikal? Neither boy had. It's a very big lake in Siberia, just above Mongolia, the scientist told them. It's also very deep. A few years ago, before the Iron Curtain closed down, word came out of Russia that some scientists had succeeded in getting heavy water samples out of Baikal. That's the only precedent I know of. It is true, he continued, that heavy water has a tendency to sink. Naturally enough, since it is heavier, but for enough to form on the bottom of a body of water, there would have to be great depth and complete calm. Any current would stir the water up, and the heavy water would merge with normal water once more. In other words, you need a lake just like this one, Rick concluded. I have to admit, it fits the requirements, Zircon agreed. And we've seen no sign of an industrial plant. These caverns certainly seem to be no place for one. We can tell soon, Scotty suggested. Let's take a sample. When we get out of here, you can test it. Quite right, Zircon said. And let's be quick about this. It didn't take long to discover the reason for the odd little derricks on the barge. Each was equipped with a pulley and a reel of wire. Obviously, it was from here that the Nansen bottles were lowered. While Chada and Scotty remained on shore, Zircon and Rick pushed the barge out into the lake. Rick got a Nansen bottle ready. Nansen bottles were made of metal, and each one was equipped with a spring cap. The bottle was lowered on a wire with the ends open, permitting water to flow through freely. When it reached the desired depth, a metal weight called a messenger was attached to the wire and dropped. The weight of the messenger released devices that closed the caps, thus trapping the water sample inside. A brass spigot on the side permitted the sample to be taken out easily once the bottle was hauled up again. They had brought four bottles from Long Shadow's stores. The first one was lowered to the very bottom, and it took a long time getting there. The reel of wire with which the barge was equipped ran out and out until a full 700 feet of it had disappeared into the dark depths of the lake. Rick was glad the reel of wire had a geared handle. Pulling that weight up would be no fun. Once the slackening of the wire told them that the bottom had been reached, Zircon put the messenger on the wire and let it go. Seconds later, a tug on the wire told them it had struck and Rick reeled it in. Other samples were taken at 5, 10, and 15 feet from the bottom. Zircon marked the bottles, then they paddled back to shore. Long Shadow spoke up. Of course you have testing equipment, 
at our camp near Course Lincoln, Sircon assured him. You'll find what you expect, the Eurasian said. Thank you. And now we'll also thank you to lead us out of here. No, Longshadow said. You're beaten, Zircon said reasonably. Why not admit that and cooperate? We've got nothing against you, even if there were law in Tibet. See us to the outside and open the barred gate, and you're at liberty to go. Rick started to protest, and then he realized Zircon was right. Law in this part of the world was the law of the rifle. There was nothing they could do to Longshadow or to Ko. Longshadow considered this a moment. I suppose you're right. My little business deal is over, at least for the time being. He raised his voice and yelled in Tibetan. The boys grabbed up their rifles as Tibetan heads showed from the caves, black eyes blinking in fear. They will carry me and Ko, Longshadow said calmly. Now, let us be on our way. I must admit I have a selfish interest in all this worry about getting to the outside. My ankle is beginning to hurt, and I won't mind having one of the llamas with medical skill take a look at it. How about letting a Hong Kong police doctor take a look at it? Rick asked. Longshadow's cheerfulness was getting on his nerves. The man acted more like a guest than a prisoner. I don't think we need to go that far, Longshadow replied. The llamas are quite capable. I wasn't concerned about your ankle, Rick corrected. I was thinking that the Hong Kong police might like to get their hands on the kind of citizen who goes around shooting up hotels with a Schmeisser machine pistol. Longshadow stopped smiling abruptly. You couldn't prove that, he said swiftly. Why not? Scotty asked. We'll let the police see if the slugs from your machine pistol don't match those in the hotel wall. By the way, where is that Schmeisser? I haven't seen it around. Longshadow recovered his grin. Oh, that. You'll never see it again. I took the precaution of disposing of it in case the police in the hotel area had been alerted. Don't bother to ask how I got rid of it. We won't, Zircon replied. Obviously you wouldn't tell us. However, perhaps you will tell us how long it will take to get out of here. About ten minutes. At their evident surprise, Longshadow added, I should have said once we cross the lake it will take about ten minutes. You came a very long way around, you see. I realize you followed the candle droppings, but I'm afraid those were left some time ago, when I first explored the cave. The first entrance you tried was the correct one, even though you didn't suspect the presence of a door. When you took the open way, you approached by a very twisting path. Just to satisfy my curiosity, Scotty asked. Why did your men capture us, then bundle us into boats and bring us here? And where were you all that time? Longshadow shrugged. I knew your guide and bearers were outside at Course Lincoln, of course. My men had kept an eye on you. I also felt they probably would start a search after you failed to return. It was almost certain they would find the entrance to the caverns behind the Black Buddha. And like you, they would probably follow the candle drippings. 
The drippings would lead them nowhere. Unless they found the secret door, there would be no chance of them finding you here in our permanent camp. Hence I have brought you here. Co and I were waiting in the cave I used for an office. When we thought time enough had elapsed for my orders to be carried out, we came here. Meanwhile, we took a nap. Are you satisfied? You never intended that we should ever see the light of day again, Rick stated. He winked at his friends. Suppose we just tie a few stalactites to your feet and a coes and see how long it takes you to get down to where the heavy water is. He looked meaningly at the lake. Co groaned, but Longshadow only smiled. If that's the way you want it, at least it will be quick. Both of us are done for, whether you know it or not. Your Mr. Bradley will see to that. As Longshadow had said, it took little more than ten minutes after crossing the lake before the party reached the cave under the Black Buddha. They had passed through the cave where Rick had found the Tibetan. Again he realized how lucky he had been. Some good angel had led him to the main route. Had he fallen asleep in some other cave, he might still be wandering through the labyrinth. The rifles taken from Scotty and Zircon by Long Shadow's men had been found in one of the tents. With Rick's rifle, they were insurance against treachery. But Long Shadow seemed resigned for some reason that Rick couldn't fathom. And Ko did nothing but curse the bearers who carried him. Before reaching the great cave, they stopped at a blank wall. At a signal from Long Shadow, one of the Tibetans reached behind a stalagmite and pulled a lever. A section of the wall swung open, disclosing the passage that they had thought stopped in a dead end. In a few moments, they were crossing the outer cave, and Rick saw at once that the bars across the entrance passage were gone. When the inner door opens from the inside, the bars also open, Longshadow said. There is another cave under this one where the mechanism is located. No, I am not responsible. The ancient ones who made the Black Buddha also made the doors and mechanism. Rick ran ahead through the passage. He found the leather thong that controlled the door and pulled. The metal tongue came out of its slot, permitting the counterbalance to swing the trap door upward. The others were behind him with their lights, and Rick saw his shadow loom large on the wall behind the Black Buddha. In the same way, the long shadow had been projected upward, probably by the light from a candle in the hands of a Tibetan bearer. He experimented, backing down a few steps. His shadow seemed to fold downward into the oblong box of light cast by the flashlight. When he walked up the stairs again, the shadow grew out of the bottom of the projected oblong of light. As Rick reached the floor level, he froze suddenly, his fingers slipping the hammer of his rifle to full cock. There were lights in the cave. As he turned to call a warning, yellow-robed llamas, who had seen the reflected light in the rear wall, poured around the statue with wild yells, their torches held high. Something's up, Rick called to the others. Watch it! Under the threat of Rick's rifle, then Scotty's, and then Zircon's, the llamas fell back until the group stood alongside the Black Buddha, looking into the cave. There were torches everywhere. And there were cooking fires. Rick's first thought was that they had returned in the midst of a religious celebration. And then he saw Singh. The Chinese guide ran to them, his face split into a wide grin. You came! he exclaimed happily. 
We are about to tear the mountain down stone by stone. Where's the Indian boy? Chada came from behind the statue, hurting the Tibetans who carried Long Shadow, Ko, and the Nansen bottles. Singh turned and yelled. The Lamas broke into cries of approval at the sight of Chada. Several of them ran to him and pressed his hand. He was a favorite, obviously. They came to help when I told them the Indian boy was in danger, Singh explained. We were ready to start digging holes to find the caverns because we couldn't find the door. He eyed Longshadow curiously and grinned at the sight of Ko. Should I get my frying pan again? he asked. Might be a good idea, Rick said. My boss has not come yet, Chada asked. Singh clapped hands at his head in a gesture of self-annoyance. I forgot, a letter came. One of the consulate guards, a Chinese who knows this part of the world, brought it from Chongqing. It may be from Mr. Bradley, because it came originally from Hong Kong. Zircon took the envelope, while Rick, Scotty, and Chada looked over his shoulder. The envelope was marked for delivery from Hong Kong to Chongqing via diplomatic pouch. It was addressed to Zircon with a note, urgent, forward by messenger. Bradley's initials were signed to it. The scientist ripped the envelope open and looked around to be sure Longshadow and Co. were out of earshot when he read, Have all the answers except the source. When you find it, destroy it if possible. If you get Longshadow and Worthington Co., don't bother bringing them back to Hong Kong, if they're still alive. Leave them at Course Lincoln. Cable me from Chongqing when you return. It was signed Bradley. I like his confidence in us, Zircon remarked. Not if, but when. My boss does not know what it means to fail, Chada said. I can see one failure, Zircon remarked. How does one destroy a body of water? Scotty's forehead wrinkled thoughtfully. Couldn't we just stir it up? Heavy water's all on the bottom. You give that a stir, the heavy stuff will mix with the rest. Would it not just settle right back? Chada objected. Not for a thousand years. It's a great idea, Scotty. Do you happen to have a spoon seven hundred feet long? Scotty grinned. Yeah, Mr. Coe supplied one. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a grenade. These will do the best job of stirring up that black cup of tea you've ever seen. Excellent, Sir Con exclaimed. That'll do perfectly, Scotty. He looked at the boys. Who wants to go back? Singh spoke up. I will go, and some of the lamas should too. The monastery should know all about these caves in case something like this ever happens again. He spoke to the lamas in Tibetan. They consulted briefly and then nodded assent. Five of them stepped forward. Scotty and I will go, Rick volunteered. I want to see how this spoon works. He looked at Longshadow and Co. Maybe they ought to go back and see the end of their racket, whatever it is. No need, Zircon said. They know it's the end, and so does Bradley, which is more than we know, I must say. But we'll find out from Bradley very soon. Rick hefted his rifle. Incidentally, there's one thing I want to do before we go back. What's that? He grinned at the scientist. I want to go hunting blue sheep. Me too, Scotty chimed in. Zircon chuckled. Very well. 
One day for sheep before we hit the trail. Since Bradley prohibits our taking revenge on the enemy, we'll take it out on the local livestock. Now get going and do a thorough job. Chapter 19 Canton Charlie's You've come a long way, lads, Keaton Yates said. From golden mice to blue sheep and back to golden mice again. I must say, you should be thoroughly familiar with the animal kingdom by now. They are very familiar with animal world, Charlie agreed. Also sometimes become part of that world by making jackasses of themselves, like when shooting blue sheep. The boys had each bagged a blue sheep, but at considerable risk to life and limb. In the process, they had gotten themselves marooned on a rock ledge high above Course Lincoln, from which Singh, with the help of the bearers, had managed to rescue them. Never mind, Carl Bradley said. They got their sheep, even if it almost took their necks to do it. Those heads will make nice trophies by the time the taxidermists are through with them. The heads were in a Hong Kong shop being mounted. Bradley had promised to ship them back to Spindrift by sea. Canton Charlie made his way through the empty tables, followed by a Chinese who carried a tray laden with glasses. More dragon's blood, I guess, meaning coke, Zircon said with a smile. I suggest we drink a toast to success and then get down to business. Carl, you've kept us waiting long enough to hear your story. It's the sort of tale that should be heard on a full stomach, the ethnologist said. That's why I've made you wait. Now we've filled up on Charlie's excellent chow, and we can talk. We have a little while before the mob gathers. Bradley had insisted that all of them, including Keaton Yates, dine with him at the Golden Mouse before swapping experiences and completing the story of the heavy water. They had eaten real Cantonese food using chopsticks, and they were full to the ears. Scotty grinned at Canton Charlie. We owe you an apology he said. The proprietor of the Golden Mouse shook his head. It's the other way around. Carl and Chada told me you would come. If I'd kept a better lookout while waiting for Carl to come after, I sent him a message. That Portuguese would never have had a chance to tip off Long Shadow, and the Chinese who dropped the message would have been caught in the act. After talking it over, they had decided the Portuguese seaman, who had been giving himself a manicure with the dagger, probably had been the one who tipped off Longshadow about the three Americans who had asked for Chada. Of course, Longshadow knew of Chada's connection with Bradley because of the incidents in Singapore. Canton Charlie grinned evilly. That Portuguese won't be doing any more spying for Longshadow. His meaning was clear. Rick's eyes met Scotty's. Pull up a chair, Charlie, Carl Bradley said. We'll drink a toast in Coke to our former pals, Long Shadow and Worthington Co. Zircon lifted his glass, then took a sip. Long Shadow said he and Co. were finished, he recalled. And you said as much in your note, or implied it. But I'm hanged if I know why they're finished. They were healthy enough when we left them at Course Lincoln. Bradley smiled without mirth. To understand their punishment, you must understand what has happened. Suppose I start at the beginning. That is the best place, Chana said. 
You better start at Singapore, boss. Plenty I don't know also. All right, Charter. To begin with, I first heard about heavy water in Singapore from an informant with whom I deal. I'm no physicist, of course. I wouldn't know heavy water if I were served coffee made with the stuff. But I saw the implications right away, and I sent a cable to Washington. You know about that because Steve Ames contacted Hudson Brandt, if I'm right. You're right, Rick agreed. At the time, I knew nothing except the heavy water had appeared in Singapore. I continued investigations at top speed. I managed to locate the house, which was headquarters for the heavy water dealers, again with the aid of an informant. At first, I thought the stuff was coming over land, down the Malay Peninsula. Then I learned it was being shipped in by boat from Hong Kong. Customers were starting to come into the Golden Mouse now. Bradley lowered his voice so as not to be overheard. At the time, the dealers spotted Charter and me. It wasn't hard to do for an expert such as we were up against. I walked into our hotel room, and I was jumped by Worthington Co. and some Chinese thugs. We had it hot and heavy for a while, and some blood was shed. He grinned. Not mine, of course, I'm happy to say. I managed to get clear and decided I'd better drop out of sight. So I became a Eurasian seaman. It's a disguise I've used before, and it's quite safe. Rick studied Bradley's face. He had a bone-deep tan, and his face, although pleasant, had no really distinguishing characteristics. It was easy to see how he could become a Eurasian. Disguise, after all, was just putting yourself into a part. It wasn't a matter of makeup. I hurried to Hong Kong, Bradley went on, sure that Charter would piece together enough of the story to follow me. I stopped at Saigon on the way and contacted our legation there. The minister had received the cable sent to all missions in the Far East, giving your names and descriptions and time of arrival in Hong Kong. The timing must have been close, Scotty said. It was. The legation had received the cable only hours before my arrival. It probably was the day you left New York. Also, I think it was the day I left Singapore, Charter said. I got to Hong Kong and contacted Charlie. Bradley continued. Tell us what you found out, Charlie. Charlie shrugged. No trouble. I got in touch with a pal of the Chinese Beggars Guild. He checked up and found out that a lot of coolies carrying goatskin water bags were crossing from China to Kowloon and from Kowloon to the island. Of course, a lot of that goes on anyway, but some of the coolies weren't selling their water. I got my hands on one of the coolies, and we sort of told him he ought to sing us a song about where the water came from. Charlie grinned. He sang all right. He yodeled real good about Course Lankin. He also said Longshadow had been at the monastery. Do you know Longshadow? Rick asked Bradley. Yes, I have never met him, but I know him by reputation. Charlie stood up. Gotta go take care of customers. See you later. As he left, Bradley continued. The next step was to get a line on the source of the heavy water. We had the name, of course, Lincoln, but that was it. I assumed it was being produced industrially somewhere on the Tibetan border, but that would take equipment, of course. So I put the consulate commercial section to work, finding out if Longshadow had been dabbling in industrial equipment. That's routine for a consulate. Well, he hadn't. But what turned up was the fact that he had imported some non bottles. I begin to see how it shaped up, 
Zircon said. It wasn't difficult, really, Bradley admitted. Just took plugging. At that time, Chada arrived from Singapore, bringing Longshadow with him, although he didn't know it. Unhappy me, Chada complained. Bradley smiled at the Hindu boy. Don't be unhappy. Longshadow is the best in the business. Well, I told Charter to go to course Lincoln, then drop my disguise. As I hoped, Long Shadow started following me and dropping Charter. Once Charter was on his way, I ditched Long Shadow and became the Eurasian once more. We had given Charlie instructions about you. He got in touch with me the moment you showed up, but I was delayed. Meanwhile, you had been spotted, probably when you asked for Charter. Long Shadow must have figured the odds were piling up. He'd lost me, so he probably decided to keep the odds down by removing all of you. He nodded to Keaton Yates. Thanks to our young banking friend here, we found you before you'd been knocked in the head. Then I took off after Long Shadow, as you know. Somewhere between times, I'd gotten the council to get a nonsense bottle, a rubber boat, and that other stuff for you. I didn't know why you'd need a rubber boat, but I figured a nonsense bottle meant water, and you'd better be prepared. If we hadn't been trapped in the caverns, we could have used the rubber boat, but it was at the camp which sang when we needed it. Fortunes of war, Bradley said. Well, while you were sneaking around through the caves, I kept busy. You probably know that the Far East is the happiest spying ground in the world. There are so many spies, they have to spy on each other. He turned suddenly to Keaton Yates. Isn't that right, colleague? The young Englishman's expression never changed. Yes, and there are some mighty good ones, like Bradley here. Soon as I knew he was on the case, I reported to my superiors, and we dropped the thing like a hot potato, just to avoid being at cross-purposes. We knew that the Americans would tip us off as soon as they had a definite answer. The boys stared at Keaton Yates. But you're a bank clerk, Rick exclaimed. He's also a British intelligence agent, Bradley said, grinning. That's why I insisted he come tonight. You already informed the Brits through channels that the heavy water menace no longer exists. Keaton Yates is here tonight to get the details. You chaps would be simply amazed at how much valuable information one picks up at a bank, Keaton Yates said. Astounding. Although I must say, having lads ask for golden mice was a bit unusual. Scotty shook his head. And you look so innocent, he complained. We believed everything you said. The young Englishman grinned. I am innocent. No woolly little lamb could be more so. And I told you the blessed truth, you know. Even though I didn't mention, I had a bit of a job to do as well as having an interest in your welfare. Our own chaps had discovered heavy water was coming into Hong Kong, too, so naturally we were interested. But since Bradley was already on the job, we had to cooperate with you Americans on matters atomic. We sat back and we just waited. I'm astonished, Zircon admitted. Carl, get on with your story. Right. As I said, spies spy on each other. I contacted a French agent I know, and in the course of having lunch with him, I casually asked how much he had paid for the information about an atomic pile. I was just fishing, of course. Well, he took the bait. He leapt at it like a striking tuna. I knew I had something then, 
and from then on it wasn't hard to uncover the whole business. Just by making contact with the espionage agents of various countries. The yachting man wet his throat with another sip of coke. And business is just what it is. I can't say how long ago Long Shadow found out there was heavy water in the Caves of Fear. I did find out that in his younger days he was something of a scientist, and that he explored Coarse Lenkin region thoroughly. That was shortly before the discovery of heavy water in Lake Baikal. I think we could assume he pieced the story together and realized that the lake and the cavern had some possibilities. It would have been only a matter of scientific curiosity then, but with recent developments in the atomic field, the possibilities took on new light. He paused as a Filipino brushed by, then resumed, lowering his voice so only those at the table could hear. He's a smart one. I've known about him for a long time, as one of the best freelance agents in the Far East. He has a good reputation for accuracy, and he sells, well, sold, information to the highest bidder. He was riding on his reputation in this deal, because as soon as the facts became known, as they had to sooner or later, he was all washed up as a spy. I don't get it, Rick complained. I'll explain. He was selling a story to every country that was interested. He would contact the embassy, consulate, or chief espionage agent of, say, Country X. He would report that Country Y had a secret atomic pile, a nuclear reactor, that is, in the mountains of West China. You can imagine the excitement. He would sell that information for a reasonable price. Then, for a considerably higher price, he would undertake to collect a sample of the deuterium they were using. Once he collected the sample, which, of course, came from Course Lenkin, he would contract to give them the location of the reactor for a very high price indeed. He made the rounds country by country, changing his story as needed. Of course, he collected in advance for the location, which was to be delivered later after he had risked his life getting it. That was the story he used, and some of the best agents in Asia fell for it. The daring ingenuity of the thing made Rick shake his head but they were certain to catch up with him sooner or later. Of course, he knew that, but he intended to stall in giving them the final location until he had tapped every possible source. Then I believe he intended handing them some phony location in West China, after which he would disappear and live on his proceeds. He collected enough to make him very wealthy. He hadn't reached us yet, but you could bet that if I hadn't stumbled onto the story, he would have made a sale to one of our embassies or consulates. Ours too, Keaton Yates said. He took advantage of all the interest in atomic weapons, and of his reputation, of course. What about Co? Scotty asked. Co had a sideline, Bradley explained. He was selling heavy water to various institutions and schools all over Asia for normal experimental purposes. He claimed to be importing it from England. That was why they were bringing so much of it out. That is also how we got interested, Keaton Yates said. We got inquiries about more heavy water at a lower price from one of the schools that had bought Coe's product. Naturally, we knew no heavy water was coming from England, so we got interested very quickly. We sure dropped a monkey wrench on their gold mine. Evidently, Zircon agreed. But you haven't explained why Longshadow and Co. are finished. Keaton Yates laughed grimly. Bradley stretched his legs out. Easy. 
The story had already spread about heavy water across Lincoln. Riley and I got the good word circulating right after we received your cable from Chongqing. By now, every country he sold his story to, and that is most countries, know they've been done in the eye. Do you know what the penalty for a double cross is in the espionage trade? A bullet, a knife, or a blunt instrument, Keaton Yates said. It's as certain as tomorrow's dawn. Bradley nodded. Also, the Lamas won't permit the two of them to remain after their wounds are healed. They are evil men, and the Lamas know it. Sooner or later, they'll have to leave the mountains and enter back into civilization. I know their type. They might survive if they want to live alone in the mountains like two wolves, but they won't. Rick shuddered. He knew from experience what it was like to be hunted. Ko and Longshadow would be hunted by agents of a dozen countries or more once they set foot in civilization. After that, it was only a matter of time. The two could not escape for long. Now, Bradley said, let's have the details of your trip. I'll be quick, Zircon said. A burly seaman brushed past. Bradley let out a yelp as the seaman stepped squarely on his foot. Watch out where you're going, you big ox, he exclaimed. The seaman stopped short. Oh, you called it a ruddy ox, you blider. He grabbed Bradley by the collar. The yonic man's hands moved in a blur of speed. One struck the seaman's hand away. The second caught him just above the solar plexus. The seaman rocked backwards, stumbled over a table occupied by three Portuguese, and crashed to the floor, taking the table with him. One Portuguese clubbed the seaman over the head with a bottle. The second threw a glass at Bradley. The third picked up a chair. Look out! Scotty yelled. He flung his coke into the face of the chair wielder, then jumped to grab the chair. The Portuguese who swung the bottle threw it at Scotty, missed, and knocked the glass out of the hand of a Sikh seated at a nearby table. The Sikh rose with a battle yell and leapt. Rick lost track after that. For a moment he stood amazed, and then jumped to help Chada, who was being tackled from behind by one of the Portuguese. Canton Charlie's was in an uproar. The fight had spread like fire and dead leaves. Rick hadn't been aware of the place filling up, but it was definitely full now. Bottles and glasses flew. He ducked a wild swing with a chair, then as he stood up, he brought the table with him, dumping it over three Chinese who were struggling with Scotty. A fist caught him behind the ear, and he kicked backwards and whirled, his elbow catching a Filipino sailor in the chest. The Filipino sprawled backwards. A bottle whizzed past Rick's ear. He ducked, then rushed to Zircon. The big scientist was holding a British seaman in each hand, busily knocking their heads together. Scotty rose out of his path, swinging. A Eurasian who had been about to swing with the bottle stopped short, swaying as Scotty's fist connected. The bottle dropped on Chada, who was crawling out from under a table. An American sailor rushed past, one arm catching Rick and sending him sprawling. Rick swung wildly and pulled his punch just in time to keep from bashing Keaton Yates, who was busy with the swarthy man with gold rings in his ears. The place was a complete madhouse. Bradley went headlong at Rick's feet, jumped up again like a rubber ball and plunged back into the fray. Rick saw with amazement that he was grinning from ear to ear. A Portuguese rose from nowhere and aimed a roundhouse swing at Rick's head. 
He ducked, then put all his weight into an overhand chop, missed, and fell against the Portuguese. The man threw him off and caught him behind the ear with a short hook. Rick shook his head, dazed. Another punch caught him in the cheek. He lost his temper then and flailed out. One fist connected solidly. The Portuguese vanished to be replaced by somebody else. Rick swung until his arms were leaden. Then, in the midst of the turmoil, came a stentorian bellow. Here! Listen! He turned. Canton Charlie was standing on the bar, and a sawed-off shotgun roared impartially over the crowd. The first man who pulls a knife gets this! He shouted. There was a roar from the mob, and the instant of silence dissolved into a melee again. Rick turned back to see how his friends were doing, and saw a fist coming at him. He tried to bring his hands up, but he was too slow. The fist got bigger and bigger and bigger, and exploded into bright lights. His knees buckled, and he drifted off into peace and quiet. Chapter 20 Flight Home The golden mouse, Keaton Yates said judiciously, is rapidly becoming a purple mouse. He tilted Rick's face to the light. I also see other colors. By the time you get home, a rainbow will be rather pale and dull by comparison. I got a mouse hung on me all right, Rick said. I didn't even see who did it. I did, Scotty volunteered. It was a British seaman. Chada polished him off with a bottle before you even hit the floor. Zircon wrapped gauze around Bradley's knuckles. For an ethnologist, which is a peaceful profession, you are mighty quick to take offense, he stated. My boss is a sudden man, Chada said from the bed where he lay with a wet cloth on his head. They were in their room at the Peninsular Hotel. Rick had recovered under the urging of a bucket of water in the hands of Canton Charlie. He was still wet. He stripped off his shirt and grinned as he looked around him. All of them bore souvenirs. His was probably the most colorful, consisting of a black eye that covered nearly half of his face. Scotty had a welt across his forehead that would last several days. Bradley had lost most of the skin off of his knuckles of his right hand. Zircon moved gingerly, favoring his bruised ribs. Chada and Keaton Yates bore painful, egg-shaped lumps from swung bottles. Happens at Canton Charlie's every night, Bradley said. Can't disappoint the customers, only a question of who starts it. Tonight I happen to be the one. You get so you rather enjoy it after a while. As a sport, it'll never replace checkers, Scotty said. He winced as his fingers explored the welt on his forehead. Rick chuckled. He could see what Bradley meant. As long as Canton Charlie's shotgun ensured fair play, to the extent of no knives, it was just a free-for-all, such as might happen anywhere, at least where seamen gathered. It's like swimming in cold water, he said. Getting in is tough, but it's kind of fun once you've made the plunge. Bradley flexed his bandaged hand. That's right. Now it's getting late, and I still want to hear about your experiences. Hobart, want to pick up where we left off? They found seats on the beds and in the wicker chairs while the big scientist told of their adventures in Course Lincoln, with assists from the boys. When he finished, Keaton Yates sighed. I wish now I'd gone with you. 
Nothing dull while you Americans go. While you were barging around caves, I was making change in the bank. Rather dull. I guess that ties up all the loose ends, Bradley said, and it makes for quite a package. Even without a nuclear reactor or any potential atom bombs, Rick added. Anyway, we couldn't know until we investigated that there wasn't some sort of atomic menace in the offing. Right, Zircon agreed. I must say, however, I have a fine story for one of the scientific journals. My analysis of the water sample shows a layer almost a foot deep of nearly pure deuterium. It's an amazing phenomenon which will require more of a theory than just heavy water settling. Settling wouldn't produce a fraction of the amount. I'm taking the samples home for further analysis, along with some samples of limestone from the caves. Who knows, this may produce scientific findings of some significance. It may, Bradley agreed. I hope it does, because then the trip will have made some contribution to the sum total of our knowledge, besides contributing information to the Yonig files. Have the files of our office, Keaton Yates added. Rick looked at Chada. What now for you? Going to stay in the Far East for a while? The Hindu boy smiled. Not for so very long. I think now I will go back to Bombay, see my family for a while, and then I will come to Spindrift. Swell, Scotty exclaimed. We missed you, half-pot. Zircon and Rick echoed the sentiment. There's no point in our staying on here, the scientist said. We can get space. We'll take off on tomorrow's flight. He smiled. It'll be good to get back to our peaceful lab. Ha, huh, lads? Yep, Scotty agreed. Definitely, Rick said. And even as they spoke, halfway across the world, Hammerstrokes completed a structure that would mean anything but peace. The End we hope you've enjoyed this Uvula Audio presentation of The Case of Fear by John Blaine. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. The Rick Grant theme should be recognizable as the Johnny Quest theme, which was composed by Hoyt Curtin. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you.